Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Eleanor Goldfield will return later in May. Today on the program, we welcome back the co-founder of this program, Peter Phillips, author of Giants, the Global Power Elite. Peter joins us today for a conversation with political sociologist William I. Robinson. Robinson's new book, Global Civil War, Capitalism, Post-Pandemic, provides a big-picture account of how the coronavirus pandemic and new digital technologies have drastically transformed capitalism and the entire global economy and society. For the hour today, Peter Phillips and William Robinson will talk about this phenomenon. They'll also talk about global social justice movements that have risen to counter what we now face. An hour today on the global civil war, capitalism post-pandemic with William I. Robinson and Peter Phillips. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Eleanor Goldfield will return later in May. Today on the program, for the hour, we discuss global civil war, capitalism post-pandemic. The author is William I. Robinson, distinguished professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Among his many books are Global Capitalism and the Crisis of Humanity, Into the Tempest, Essays on the New Global Capitalism, and the Global Police State. William I. Robinson has been on the program before, and we are delighted to bring him back to talk about his new book, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. William Robinson, welcome back to the Project Censored Show. Thank you so much for having me on. And we have another special guest today. It is none other than Peter Phillips. He is professor of political sociology at Sonoma State University, former director of Project Censored, and co-founder of this program. Peter retired from the show a couple years ago. He is also author of Giants, the Global Power Elites. And Peter Phillips joins us today to be in conversation with William I. Robinson about global civil war capitalism post-pandemic. Peter Phillips, welcome back to your show. Well, thanks, Mickey. At least once or twice a year, I've got to be on the show. It's great. It's a delight to have you back. And of course, no better topic to have you here to discuss with the esteemed scholar, William Robinson. And just really quick background here. This book is PM Press, and it provides a big picture account of how the coronavirus pandemic and new digital technologies have drastically transformed capitalism and the entire global economy and society. And William Robinson, let's go ahead and get started. This book clearly follows a thread of your previous publications. Can you start off with what led you into this book? You're writing this book during the pandemic. Sure. Well, there's several things. The first is that I've been writing about global capitalism, about how world capitalism has been in a process of transformation and restructuring really since the late 20th century, what many of us call globalization. But I began to notice in the 2010s, and then this burst onto the scene with the pandemic, that there's a new wave of radical new wave of restructuring and transformation in global capitalism that is now being driven by these cutting edge new digital technologies. 
what's been called fourth industrial revolution technologies. And these technologies are allowing the transnational capitalist class, the transnational elite to undertake a new wave of predatory expansion and also to clamp down on the mechanisms of social control of a rest of global population. That's the first thing that motivated me. The second thing is that, especially since 2008, the global financial collapse of 2008, there has been a global revolt that has picked up in steam and intensity throughout the 2010s. And it really exploded onto the scene from 2017 to 2019. That was a peak in this global revolt. And this, of course, has the ruling groups very fearful, a revolution from below a radical challenge from below. And so the ruling groups, first of all, use these new technologies to develop and then enhance a global police state. But then the pandemic comes along and the pandemic allowed the ruling groups several things. First, it allowed them to intensify their crackdown on the global revolt, to keep a lid on mass discontent, to implement new forms of social control and repression in the name of fighting the pandemic. And the second thing the pandemic did is allowed these new technologies to take a qualitative leap forward. So now it's ongoing, but this is involved now in every aspect of global society and economy, the application of these new digital technologies. And they really came online full stream um, with the pandemic, and they're resulting in several things. One is they're intensifying global inequalities. They're intensifying the power and control of the giant global conglomerates. In the introduction, you mentioned that, especially we're talking about the tech companies, the global financial conglomerates that, that Peter has written so much uh, about, the military industrial complex, and also what we can now call the medical industrial complex, including the giant pharma companies. Um, so really, the pandemic puts us in a whole new ballgame in the context of what's been happening since 2008. Peter Phillips. William, can you define the transnational capitalist class, how we frame that? Yeah, I've been writing about that for the last 20, 25 years. And of course, Peter, your book, Giants, is also part of that analysis of the leading edge of capitalists worldwide is this fraction that we've been calling the transnational capitalist class. And these are the leading owners and managers of the global corporations that drive the global economy that humanity is dependent upon and that really controls the global economy. We're talking about the multimillionaire and the billionaire class, and you know, this millionaire and billionaire class, the transnational capitalist class, increasingly controls states, dictates what states can't and can do, and dictates the terms of our life as global capitalism enters this ever deeper crisis. I wanna mention the crisis because the backdrop to all of this is this severe multidimensional crisis of global capitalism. Part of that crisis is based upon a consolidation of capital ongoing, where they have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. That's what we call in technical terms an overaccumulation crisis. And let's look at global inequalities for a minute. Many of the listeners will be familiar with this data. By the end of the 2010s, 1% of humanity controlled over 52% of the world's wealth. And 20% of humanity, of course, that's the portion of humanity that can still survive in the new global capitalism, controlled 95% of the world's wealth. That means we have 80% of humanity. We have billions and billions of people that have to make do with only 5% of the world's wealth. And so under these conditions of extreme inequality, the global economy has the capacity to produce this tremendous amount of wealth. I mean, we have the capacity of the global economy to resolve all the problems of humanity, housing and hunger and everything, 
But all of that wealth is monopolized by the transnational capitalist class, and all of it goes to increasing profit-making, not to meeting social needs. So under these conditions, the transnational capitalist class, and we have all this data, I've presented it in my research, and so have you, Peter, have accumulated enormous amounts of cash. They're sitting on $20 trillion in cash that is uninvested. And so that leads to this chronic stagnation. And that's what we call overaccumulation. They've accumulated all of this capital. They don't know where to reinvest it. So they've reinvested it in recent years in wild financial speculation, wild financial speculation. They've also reinvested it in plundering state resources. And they've reinvested it or they've kept the economy going with what we call debt-driven accumulation, meaning that levels of consumer debt are at an all-time high. Levels of corporate debt are an all-time high. Levels of state and government debt around the world are an all-time high. So these mechanisms to prevent another major economic recession or collapse are temporary. They're not doing the trick. The fourth aspect of the transnational capitalist class and the crisis that it's brought us to is that increasingly the transnational capitalist class is turning to what I call, and this is from the earlier book, Global Police State. Now I've expanded the discussion in the new book, Global Civil War, what I call militarized accumulation and accumulation by repression, meaning that more and more the transnational capital class invest in wars, in warfare, in conflict, in systems of mass social control and repression, just to make profit and keep the economy going in the face of this chronic stagnation. And of course, I'll just conclude by saying that's part of the story of Ukraine. Now, that's a very complex topic. I'm not saying that conflict simply boils down to transnational capitalists making money by selling military equipment and, and stoking this war. But that is a part of the story. And let's remember, I'll, I'll conclude my response with, of course, I finished writing this book in 2021, and Ukraine is very recent. But as soon as the Ukraine conflict happens, the military industrial complex corporations had a giant mass celebration and a mass party. And in a recent article I published, I quoted one saying, happy days are here again. Vladimir Putin is the best thing we could have possibly had. We're back in the money. So that's some of the dimensions of a global crisis and the transnational capitalist class, how they're dealing with it and driving us towards a situation of extreme danger. William Robinson, you write at the outset of the book about the expansion of a global war economy that may pick up some of the slack of this destabilized system of global capitalism, right? You say it runs up against limits of certain fixes that they would try. You just mentioned this war, Russia, Ukraine, that the military industrial complex and everything connected to it seems to be celebrating. They seem to be doing fine economically. But you write here, the global economy prior to this, prior to the pandemic, you write the global economy was a ticking time bomb. That's before COVID-19, all that was needed, you write, was something to light the fuse that came in the form of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I wanted to go back a little bit. You talk in the book about the gain of function issues. You talk about some of the controversies around this, and you wisely point out that regardless of whether this escapes from a lab or it comes from a bat, the end results of the way in which that this crisis is used is the same. Could you talk about that? That's a massive question, but let me then, if I can, because I want to come back, I know you'll ask, and I want to come back later to the global revolt, because I don't want to make a scene by like the ruling groups, the transnational capitalist class, and the capitalist states, which really that transnational capitalist class is able to control in most cases. I don't want to make a scene like they're all powerful and the mass of humanity us are powerless in the face of this juggernaut. It's all to the contrary. That's why it's called global civil war. There's a mass global revolt. 
There are struggles breaking out everywhere that the ruling groups are terrified of. They can't control, which is why they impose a global police state. And it's why they are using these new digital technologies and the pandemic to clamp down. But let me talk, if it's okay, a little bit about this digitalization, what I call the emerging post-pandemic capitalist paradigm. We are on the brink of a major new round of restructuring and transformation of global economy and society based on this much more advanced digitalization of the world. But let me say that, of course, the digital technologies we're all familiar with are artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, this collection, processing, and analysis of immense amounts of data, the Internet of Things and blockchain, and the rise very soon, we're going to see it more generally, of digital currencies, automation and robotization, nano and biotechnology. And of course, that includes big pharma, medical industrial complex, 3D printing, quantum and cloud computing, autonomously driven land, air, and sea vehicles, augmented reality, virtual reality, and the 5G network. These are some of the technologies. The reason I'm raising them is because these technologies were already being developed, but they, in hothouse fashion, have incredibly deepened and extended and have been applied through the pandemic and is being done so, one, to increase massive profit making, but secondly, to heighten the mechanisms of social control and global surveillance. And we can get into this later, but the pandemic allowed the transnational capitalist class to consolidate, therefore, their grip on the global economy, and especially the leading sectors of the transnational capitalist class, as you mentioned previously, the big tech companies, military industrial complex, medical industrial complex, and the giant global financial conglomerate. So we're seeing the rise of what I call in the book a Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Pentagon nexus. And all of this accelerates and deepens through the pandemic. I'd like to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are talking today with William I. Robinson. He is author of the new book, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. We're also joined by political sociologist Peter Phillips, author of Giants, the Global Power Elites. We'll continue our conversation about the global civil war, capitalism post-pandemic, after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome Professor of Sociology, Global Studies, and Latin American Studies from the University of California, Santa Barbara, William I. Robinson. His new book, just out from PM Press, is Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. We are also joined by political sociologist Peter Phillips, author of Giants, the Global Power Elite. And we are in conversation with William Robinson about his new book. So William Robinson... You just laid out, again, a lot of groundwork here for us. So, Peter Phillips, take us into the next segment here. William uses the term global civil war. And people go, huh? What kind of civil war is this? And, and what I think part of after reading the book, I understand that we're really talking about how the global 1% in capital, money itself, is a dictatorship of control in the world. And it's basically managed by a few hundred people that I identified in my book, Giants. 
and that they manage this capital, but they don't have like a global police force per se. Every country has their own police force, they have their own military, they have their intelligence agencies. And I think that they're working in many cases collectively together to manage uh, resistance and to create opportunities for greater investment. So the idea that a civil war exists is pretty straightforward in that global 1% have increased their wealth to the disadvantagement of everyone else in the world. And that as people resist, 80% of the world makes less than $10 a day and half the world makes only two or $3 a day. Their existence is quite troubled and they face inequality, disease. Of course, the pandemic has allowed nation states to exercise greater control over everybody. But resistance movements really focus on nation states and are not global in that sense. So how do you see this expansion of resistance in context of a civil war relative to the 1% globally? Because again, as you just laid out and to stress, part of the story is the enhanced power of the global elites and the, you know, the ruling classes, especially through digitalization and through how they responded and controlled what would happen during the pandemic, during the health disaster. But the other side here is this global result from below. And of course, this started in the late 1990s, but really the key point is the global financial collapse of 2008. And that launched a new qualitatively new stage in the global revolt. We all remember the early years after 2008, Occupy Wall Street, the Arab Spring, the Greek workers movement, and all over the world. But what we less realize is that that global revolt continued throughout the 2010s. It picked up steam with no turning back. We're seeing these mass popular struggles against the deprivations of global capitalism all over the world. And now these struggles are being conjoined with the fallout from the pandemic. And in the book, I lay out some very dramatic data on this. First, let me say that the crisis of global capitalism, it's structural, it's economic. We spoke about that previously. But it's also a political crisis for the ruling groups, for global capitalism. It's a crisis of state legitimacy. Most people around the world now don't consider their states or even the system we live in as legitimate anymore. And it's a crisis of capitalist hegemony. In the book, I point out this data that in the United States, according to recent polls, 60% of millennials and 57% of Generation Z support, and this is the quote, a complete change in our economic system away from capitalism. And a worldwide poll in 2020 conducted in the midst of the pandemic found that a majority of people around the world, 56%, believe that capitalism is doing more harm than good. So what does this reflect? This reflects a crisis of legitimacy and hegemony of global capitalism. And let's remember something, because remember, we moved into quarantine from some 5 billion people around the world in early 2020. But this revolt reached a crescendo in fall of 2019, what I call a people's spring. Just remember, we saw mass uprisings from Chile to Lebanon, to Iraq, to India, to France, to the United States, to Haiti, to Nigeria, South Africa, Colombia, all five continents, wherever you look, these mass struggles were breaking out in fall of 2019. Then came the pandemic and the lockdown. Now that lockdown was a blessing in disguise for the ruling groups because they forced people off the streets, but they were right back on the streets just a couple months into the quarantine. But let me say something else here, because I did some research for the book. The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace tracks 
global protests. And they reported that significant anti-government protests, that is mass uprisings, took place in that 2017 to 2019 period in 110 countries around the world, involving over 230 major actions that overthrew several dozens of governments. And then the pandemic comes and we go into quarantine. But even in the midst of the pandemic, just in the United States, there were 1,000 strikes in the first six months of the pandemic. And we're not even talking about the uprising when George Floyd was killed that involved 25 to 30 million people. In India, listen to this, and India is so revealing of global civil war, meaning that the ruling groups are intensifying their assault on the global working and popular classes, but those global working and popular classes are intensifying their pushback and their struggle from below. In India, in 2019, there was a general strike of 150 million people. It's hard to wrap our minds around 150 million people going out on strike. That was in 2019. And then comes the pandemic, they're pushed off the streets. But then in late 2020, going into early 2021, there's another general strike. And this involved 250 million people largely workers and farmers, the biggest labor mobilization in the history of the planet. So these are indicators of this global revolt from below and all have a common denominator, an aggressive global capitalism in crisis that is pushing to expand on the backs of masses of people who can take no more hardship and deprivation. This is the context for this emerging global civil war. The global capitalist system cannot push forward in the way that it is right now. It is bringing us to collapse, to utter disaster, and we are slipping into this situation of global civil war. Of course, the global revolt from below faces a number of quandaries, a number of challenges. And I won't go into it now, but the last big chapter in the book, there's a tiny conclusion, but there's three main chapters. The last one is looking at the global revolt, but also identifying what are its weaknesses, what are its challenges, how can it push forward in this emerging global civil war? I was impressed with the numbers that you have in the book and what it really means. And one of those numbers was how the Federal Reserve gave $16 trillion in 2008, basically secretly, to corporations to expand what's called quantitative easing. And essentially, it's newly created money. And it becomes an expansion of how the 1% increase their wealth. And part of that is coming from federal reserves and central banks worldwide. Because they control the governments in many situations, as in the US, they're able to do this is throw this mass amounts of money into the system, which increases global capital overall. And then you have this concept of basically fictitious capital. That is, corporations now have massive wealth, but a lot of it's not based on buildings and stock values per se, but based upon intellectual property rights, things like that, that aren't fixed assets. Can you talk a little bit about that transition that's happened? There's that 16 trillion in 2008, and then another 8 trillion during the pandemic. So you're talking about $24 trillion that didn't go to the people that went to bail out the transnational capitalist class. What you're talking about here is fictitious capital. We have this general crisis of global capitalism. 
It's also the political crisis that we discussed. Of course, it's an environmental, it's an ecological crisis, which makes it existential. And it's a social crisis for the majority of the world's people that can no longer survive in this system. So what's happened, and we were discussing this previously, is that as the global economy went into a tailspin from 2008 to date, and then there's a second collapse in the pandemic, all of this money was pumped into the transnational capitalist class, and they utilized that money to simply continue more financial speculation. And what we mean by fictitious capital is you throw money into the economy, not in our hands, in the hands of the poor and the workers, but into the hands of the capitalists. And that money is not backed by real production, by the increase in food production and housing and healthcare and the things that human beings need. It simply goes into this incredible speculation. In the late 2010s, the global economy of goods and services, the real economy that we all depend on, was valued at $75 trillion, whereas financial speculation just in derivatives, derivatives are speculative instruments, was over a quadrillion dollars. So we have this unreal situation where this fictitious capital is going into the quadrillions of dollars. And our people's economy of goods and services that we all depend on is only $75 trillion. So this gives us a, an idea of the dimensions of this crisis. I want to say that, again, I finished the book in early 2021 because of supply chain bottlenecks at the printer. It's only just coming out now some 16, 17 months later. But right now, as we speak, we are teetering on the brink of another massive collapse. A recession is coming. It's upon us. There's a spiraling in inflation. And that's not because we're consuming more. Poor people are demanding you know, more. That's a lie that it's supply and demand and poor people have money to demand more. It's first of all, because of speculation by the transnational corporations. And that's above all. And it's also because of the pandemic. But I want to say something else about this global inequalities, because part of the story of why we're in this crisis of global capitalism is because the majority of humanity can't consume. They're locked out and excluded. Surplus humanity is several billions of people. And then people with extremely low incomes are another several billion. So the mass of humanity cannot consume and inequality was already enormous going into the pandemic, but it only deepened and accelerated during the pandemic. This is actually a new report. This is exactly what happened during the pandemic, but even gotten worse in 2021 and 2022. This is a report from Oxfam. It's not in the book because it came out in January 2022 but it said new 10 richest men doubled their fortunes in the pandemic, while the income of 99% of humanity fell. New billionaires were minted every 26 hours during the pandemic, as inequality contributed to the death of one person every four seconds. And then it goes on to say, the world's 10 richest men more than doubled their fortunes from $700 billion to $1.5 trillion at a rate of $15,000 per second or 1.3 billion a day during the first two years of the pandemic that has seen the income of 99% of humanity fall and over 160 million more people forced into absolute poverty. And I will just conclude by saying that part of the reason they could do this is the circumstances under the pandemic and the ability for them to operationalize and deepen the new digital technologies that bring wealth and power to them and extract it from the masses of poor and working people. I'd like to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, we're speaking with William Robinson, Distinguished Professor of Sociology, Global Studies, and Latin American Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. We're talking about his new book, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. We're also joined by Peter Phillips, political sociologist, Sonoma State University, author of Giants, the Global Power Elite. 
We'll continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome sociologists William Robinson and Peter Phillips. We are discussing William Robinson's latest book, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. And the co-founder of the program, Peter Phillips, here at the Project Censored Show, is rejoining us today as a guest. And he is in conversation with William Robinson about this very timely and significant issue. We are all facing varying degrees of the challenges coming out of the pandemic. But William Robinson, prior to the pandemic, you say that this was already a crisis in the making. But I wanted to at least point out that you very deftly talk about the controversial nature of the beginnings of the pandemic. You talk about the problem of conspiracy theory, sort of mis- and disinformation, and how that's used to taint people who ask legitimate questions. I mentioned the gain-of-function controversy earlier, mostly only because it was dismissed during the Trump administration, only to a year later be revisited, where the media even did a big mea culpa. And major media figures said, hey, look, we didn't really address this adequately. And you do talk about some of the controversial elements that many folks don't touch. You talk about the World Economic Forum, Of course, there's the issue of the so-called Great Reset, Klaus Schwab. There also is the Gates Foundation, Event 201, that a lot of people just dismiss. But these folks had been preparing in many ways for a global catastrophe of epic proportions and in, in such so that they would be prepared to maybe weather out whatever that storm was. So could you talk a little bit about that? And then, of course, I think it's really important that you parse out the difference between fictitious conspiracy and disinformation and actual conspiracy where you can connect dots because there's a very significant difference, and I think it's very important if you could take a moment and spell that out. And I would say not just they did all of this preparation for a pandemic or, for that matter, for other emergencies, not just to weather it out, but to utilize the pandemic and these other emergencies to increase their power and control and their profit-making. And it's very important to say here, it is true that the right and the far right and Trump and all of that do put forward these wild conspiracy theories. We know that Bolsonaro, the fascist president of Brazil, said this is just a mild flu and no one should worry about it. But we can put that all aside. The left has made a mistake by assuming that because the right is doing all of that nonsense, anyone that questions the official narrative is therefore a conspiracy theorist. And that is a terrible mistake on the part of the left. So let's look at this. And first of all, let's point out that gain of function, we don't know if the virus was leaked from a lab or if it was passed from some animal to to human beings, but that's really not important. The point is that gain of function research to change things by gain of function research in laboratories is, is widespread and it's not a secret. No one is denying that. This has been going on for years now. And the reason it's going on is the giant pharmaceutical corporations, the medical industrial complex, the corporations that are invested in the pharmaceutical corporations and the foundations such as Bill and Melinda Gates and such as Rockefeller have been financing it and carrying this out. Why are they doing this? Not because they want humanity to have a disease, because they want to make profit by expanding, creating and expanding mass global vaccine 
markets because they're unbelievably profitable. So their idea is they have a gain of function of a virus that might then later become a disease. And then they develop a vaccine in the laboratory for it or a response for it. And then when that disease comes along or that virus comes along, they can jump on it and take control and make massive profit. But I also want to go back to the year of a, of a conspiracy theory because a conspiracy theory is a theory that's not backed by evidence. Then we can rule it out because there's no evidence. But once you have a theory and then you get the evidence, it's not a theory. It's a fact. It's evidence-based. It's empirical evidence that shows it. Also, biological warfare can't be ruled out because the Pentagon has biowarfare labs in 25 different countries, including in Ukraine. And by the way, some of the people that have pointed out that this is gain-of-function properties is a Nobel, a Nobel laureate, Luc Montagu, the French, French virologist who discovered the HIV virus. He said, this is gain-of-function properties. And listen to this, Fauci's assistant sent him an email which was released by a Freedom of Information Act on the eve of when this was declared a pandemic and said, Fauci, it looks like this came out of the Wuhan lab and we, meaning the CDC, financed the Wuhan lab. All of that is fact. All of that is fact. But anyway, let me read this quote. In 2011, the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam announced that a European scientific conference that had found a way to turn H5N1, a coronavirus that almost exclusively infected birds, into a possible human-to-human -human flu. Researcher Ron Fauci had told the gathering scientists that the Dutch research team, with funding from the U.S. National Institute of Health, had, quote, mutated the hell out of H5N1, turning the bird flu into a variant that could infect ferrets, a laboratory stand-in for human beings. That quote is in the book, and none of that is disputed. None of that is disputed. Again, the reason the corporations with the backing of the U.S. government are doing this is because they want to create vaccine markets because they're wildly profitable. So before COVID, the global vaccine market stood at $40 billion. Now it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Let's remember that Pfizer reported $11 billion of profits before the pandemic. And then in just 2021, they reported $32 billion in profits and $80 billion in revenue. That compares in the United States to $124 billion that is spent in education, including federal, state, and local levels. That means just Pfizer's revenues through this pandemic was like 60% of the entire educational spending in the United States. And let me conclude with this. Well before the pandemic, going back the last 15 years or so, Big Pharma, with the foundation funding, and with the support of CDC and FDA, were pushing for mandatory vaccine laws. And they carried out this series of scenarios. Again, I want to reiterate for listeners because listeners are gonna say, oh, this professor's doing conspiracy theories. I'm rejecting anything the far right says. I'm talking about the evidence that I and others have uncovered, me in writing this book, that the pharmaceutical corporations, the governments and the foundations carried out these series of scenarios for how they would respond to a real pandemic. And this one goes back, the one I'm about to read to you goes back to a scenario they rehearsed from 2010, 10 years before the pandemic. And it says, and here's the summary of the scenario. China's government was not the only one that took extreme measures to protect its citizens from risk and exposure. During the pandemic, national leaders around the world flexed their authority and imposed airtight rules and restrictions from the mandatory wearing of face masks to body temperature checks at the entries of communal spaces like train stations and supermarkets. Even after the pandemic faded, 
this more authoritarian control and oversight of citizens and their activities stuck and even intensified. In order to protect themselves from the spread of increasingly global problems from pandemics and transnational terrorism to environmental crises and rising poverty, leaders around the world took a firmer grip on power. So the point here is that this doesn't prove the pandemic was pre-planned. I do not believe that at all. I do not believe that. Rather, they, the ruling groups had been developing plans for how to respond to a pandemic in order to guarantee two things once a pandemic comes along. One, massive corporate profit and control from above of the whole response to the pandemic. And secondly, utilize the emergency of a pandemic to clamp down on the global revolt that we discussed previously. And it's very concerning that as we now slowly emerge from the pandemic, these new systems of mass social control and mass surveillance and the restriction of freedom and censorship, because censorship is not just about so-called misinformation from the pandemic. Censorship now is going to be utilized against the left more generally, and all of this accelerated by the pandemic. William Robinson, what you just said about censorship is happening right now. The Biden administration just set up the Orwellian Ministry of Truth and Disinformation Governance Board. We've seen people masquerading as fact-checkers, like from NATO's Atlantic Council working at Facebook. Now we have the digital financial services getting into it. Now we see PayPal suspending consortium news, Mint Press news. Uh, apparently, there was so much pushback that PayPal reversed the decision on consortium. But there's zero transparency here. Unrelated to the pandemic, now they're tying it to Russia-Ukraine. I think the left has to be critiqued here because during the pandemic, what we want to do, and science can't even flourish without debate, without all the evidence and all of the debate put out there. And then you sift through the evidence and you decide what is the evidence actually back. But that didn't happen during the pandemic. Who decided what was mis and disinformation was the capitalist state and the pharmaceutical corporations. And the left went along with that. It's okay that we debunk the conspiracy theories, but we have to debunk them, not by censoring them and locking them out, but by showing them how there's no evidence to support those conspiracy theories and therefore they're false. I did mention in the book that this censorship around the pandemic would then remain in place and it would be intensified after the pandemic across the board. And the real target is not the right-wing conspiracy theorists, but the left. And now this is playing out. Peter. The global police state is really a, a statement that nation states and leaders there are moving more to the right. Brazil is in that situation and India in particular. India has had massive revolts and, and 150 million people in a general strike. We need to use a fascist word. You know, it's control. And one of the big ways that fascism has evolved is to scapegoat and blame minorities, immigrants, for the crisis that capitalism is facing, for the inequality that's emerging. And that fascism is open and, and we need to speak about it because it really is a means of control. The war, and you mentioned earlier how the war in Ukraine, the invasion there, that was ongoing. Russia had, had a low-level fight ongoing for the several years in Ukraine with the Donbass region resisting. Crimea, they didn't have to occupy. They were already there with all their bases and, and naval bases. They weren't going to give up the Crimea. The CIA knew that. I mean, the elites knew that, that Russia was not going to give up. But they're, they're surrounding Russia, demonizing Putin. In a way, he's a new scapegoat for the global crisis and the wars. That sort of police state activity 
has been really talked about. Mickey mentioned the Atlantic Council. They were calling for Putin's removal several years ago. And they're basically a NATO-based advisory group, but primarily funded from the US and, and global capital that have been advocating for Putin's removal primarily so that they could open up Russia to uh, capital investment. They're salivating over the idea to get control of that gas, that oil, the resources that are throughout Russia, this vast area that they want to control because it would help alleviate some of the tension with global capital and concentration if they could expand and grow there in Russia as well. This is the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are speaking with sociologist William I. Robinson and Peter Phillips. The topic today is William Robinson's new book on PM Press, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. Stay tuned for the conclusion of our conversation after this brief musical break. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In the final segment here for today's program, we continue our conversation, a riveting in-depth conversation, with scholar William I. Robinson. He's a distinguished professor of sociology, global studies, and Latin American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, author of many books, including Global Capitalism and the Crisis of Humanity. We're talking about his new book, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. We're also joined by Peter Phillips, professor of political sociology, Sonoma State University, longtime director of Project Censored, and author most recently of Giants, the Global Power Elite. Just before the break there, William Robinson, Peter Phillips really opened up the can of worms of the F word, the fascism word that we are allowed to say with the FCC on radio. We are still allowed to say that. But you know, really quickly, because Peter brought up this idea of the global police state and new scapegoats and NATO scapegoating Putin. That's not to suggest that Putin isn't an autocrat. There's horrible censorship and crackdowns on liberties going on in Russia. There is a horrible humanitarian crisis and war going on with Russia attacking Ukraine. That's all true. People in Russia, journalists, have been sentenced to 15 years in prison for even calling the war an invasion or a war itself. Horrible things happening there. But two things can be true. It's both and, not either or. The things that Peter Phillips said before the break about fascism, the global police state, and how the West has been angling to get control here, as well as scapegoating the global poor and the global South. Let me first say that ditto everything that Peter said right before the break, and ditto everything that you just said. I'll add something here, and then I'd like to also mention a slightly different topic. I've been writing about the threat of 21st century fascism since 2007, 2008. At that point, much of the left and you know, much of the public that read my thing said, no, that's ridiculous. We don't have fascism. And now we all recognize it. We're facing 21st century fascism around the world. And let's remember that fascism has always, whether in the early 20th century and whether now in the early 21st century, has always been an extreme response to the crisis of capitalism and that crisis is deepening. And as you both have pointed out, fascism involves, first of all, scapegoats. That could be immigrants in the United States racial and religious minorities around the world, such as in India. 
But fascism also involves externalizing tensions of the crisis of legitimacy and the crisis of inequality towards these external enemies. In this case, Biden says Russia and China are the threat to freedom. We are absolutely facing the threat of fascism. And I agree with everything you've said about Russia and the situation in the Ukraine. But also I want to say that the pandemic and the conditions under which it's unfolded allowed the ruling groups to latch onto that pandemic to not only intensify their offensive for profit making and social control, but it's allowed them to enhance the conditions which are pushing us towards fascism. I did want to mention the unbelievable digitalization that is taking place because everyone knows we're moving towards a more digitalized global economy and society, but not the extent of it. The first generation of digital technologies was the computer and the internet. And that was the late 1980s. And it allowed the ruling groups to utilize that technology to launch capitalist globalization, which changed the conditions all over the world. It allowed them to put into place a globally integrated production, financial, and service system, and it allowed the transnational capitalist class to emerge. Uh, that was the first generation of capitalist globalization, but now we have these new digital technologies, which I mentioned previously. But we don't realize, and all of this data is in the book, the exponential growth of these technologies and the impacts they're having. The sharing, so-called sharing economy, has gone from $14 billion in 2014 to $335 billion today. Worldwide, the shipment of 3D printers jumped from 450,000 shipments in 2016 to nearly 7 million by the end of 2020. And now it's expanding to the tens and tens of millions. The global value of e-commerce reached $30 trillion in 2017. By 2019, global internet traffic was 66 times greater than 2005. And listen to this data because it is absolutely shocking. Global internet protocol traffic. That is a proxy for data flows all around the world. Grew from 100 gigabytes per day in 1992 to more than 45,000 gigabytes per second in 2017 and expected to reach 150,000 gigabytes per second by the end of this very year that we are in. So this is the datafication and digitalization of all of global economy and society. Here's another piece of data, because again, this is shocking, that only one quarter of the world's stored information was digitalized in 2013, and now there is only 2% of the world's information that is not digitalized. Currently, 60% of the world's population is online, and we're only in the early days of the data-driven economy. Now, why did I lay out all of that data? Because the pandemic has turbocharged this digitalization. It's converted more and more areas of the global economy and society into these new digital realms. And that has profound implications for humanity and profound implications for our struggles. And one of the things this involves is that technology is going to increasingly replace human labor. And that means that there's more surplus humanity. There's more precarious labor. And that means the ruling groups need more control of surplus humanity and precarious labor. And the digital technologies give them the capacity for that control. So we're seeing this vast acceleration of the process of automation, replacing workers with technology. As I point out in the book, for every new robot introduced in a locale, that results in the loss of between three and 5.6 jobs. 
And one study found that 42% of pandemic layoffs are going to be permanent. Permanent meaning that you either go to a new kind of work, which is de-skilled and digitalized, and 20% of the global labor force will remain remote. So the difference between earlier waves of technological change, when, you know, when horses were replaced by automobiles, everyone that made horseshoes and raised horses, they moved into other areas of the economy. But we're unlikely to see that at this point because we have algorithms and machine learning that involve pattern recognition and complex communication. That makes us in a very different situation. And when I was researching this book, The Digitalization in the Midst of the Pandemic, here's something I found, that migrants could not come into the United States. And so there was a shortage of migrant labor in the agricultural sector in California. Similarly, North African and Middle Eastern migrants that were doing all the agricultural labor in Italy and Southern Europe could suddenly not come or they couldn't go out into the fields because of the pandemic. So what did the giant transnational agribusiness corporations in California and in Southern Europe do? They introduced this technology, including machines that pick grapes for the wine industry, machines that pick strawberries. And so even this de-skilled work, which we think doesn't get you know, affected by high-tech technology, is being digitalized. And so this means that our social and political struggles are in a new ballgame. Again, the pandemic and this digitalization served as a dry run for how digitalization may now allow the dominant groups to step up, restructuring time and place, and restructuring the labor process to exercise greater control over the global working class at a time when it is on the move and in open revolt. So that's what's going on right now. Peter Phillips. One of the things that really shocked me was this idea schools, police, hospitals could all be privatized and digitized. I could see a university without professors because everything was already online. You could just plug in and take your sociology 201 class. And maybe it's Mickey giving his lectures, but it's five years old or man, and you know, might be some commentary and an update to go with it. But this idea that we could privatize all of that. And as a university professor now retired, that's terribly distressing to me. And we're faced with that. And, and I think it's really an important thing to, to think about and talk about. So I'll leave that at that because I think that was something to, and go back to your, your question, Mickey, in terms of, the, of global police state and, and control. I think that, that that's clearly an ongoing issue worldwide. And that's what William is really writing about here and how that's going to help us all. William Robinson, in the few minutes we have left, we'd be remiss if we didn't at least talk about the conclusions of your book and what can we look to in terms of solving the challenges and crisis of humanity that we face as a result of what's been happening, not just the past couple of years, but long time coming, as you mentioned, 21st century fascism. You've been writing about it for 15 years. Two things. The first thing is technology is never neutral. Technology is always related to the power structure and who controls it. But in a totally different world, in a totally different social and economic system, a system of real democracy, these technologies can liberate humanity from the drudgery of manual labor. And there's so much we can do with these technologies. But currently, they are controlled from above by the transnational capitalist class and the capitalist states. But I want to go back by way of conclusion. The question is, what can we do? I end the book with hopefulness. You have to first lay out the terrible situation we're in all of the dangers we face, because that's real. But then ending with, once again, because it's titled Global Civil War. It's not just the rulers from above dictating and controlling us. We are fighting back. But that fight back, which is the, our hope, the hope of humanity for the future, 
to bring about radical transformation in social, economic, and political relations worldwide in favor of the forward working majority. That fight back faces four quandaries, four challenges that I lay out in that concluding chapter. And while there's no time to go into a lot of detail, I'll just say that the first one is we have this proliferation of mass movements and popular uprisings all over the world, but we have a very weak organized socialist-oriented leftist political organizations. And why is that important? Some people say we don't need those big political organizations, whether we call them parties or not. We need an organized left with powerful political organizations because all of these social movements, they're confronting the miserable conditions they face that are being imposed on them, but they're also dealing with specific issues, whether it's the environment, whether it's indigenous losing their land, whether it's students fighting for access to higher education, whether it's the anti-racist struggles, whatever it is. But all of them have a common denominator, which is an aggressive predatory global capitalism in a process of radical expansion, predatory expansion, and throwing billions of people into insecurity and misery. And they are traditionally powerful labor and political organizations which aggregate all of these diverse demands and circumstances into a pro emancipatory project, a project of transformation. And so we have this disjuncture, which is disturbing between the mass social movements and the mass of humanity wanting radical change and the lack of a stronger political left. That's the first and the biggest challenge. The other that Peter mentioned previously is that these things go on globally, but the individual nation states cannot really challenge this situation. So we really need, and I've been emphasizing this for 25 years now, we need new forms of transnational struggle. No one nation state can bring about the popular transformation worldwide that we need. The third thing is that we've had, and we have to critique this, what I call an identitarian paradigm. And that identitarian paradigm has gained so much strength, the press, especially on campuses, but it has eclipsed the language of class, and especially it's eclipsed the critique of global capitalism that we need. So that's the third big challenge. And the fourth big challenge is the threat of authoritarianism and fascist projects that we have discussed. But those first three challenges feed into or give more space to the threat of fascism. So I'll conclude by saying this. Here is the future that we're facing. As global civil war heats up in the post-pandemic world, societal disintegration and political collapse is already taking place. The pandemic was a hothouse that has accelerated the crisis of capitalist rule. It has animated states, such as the US state with the Ukraine crisis, to externalize social and political tensions whose origins come from capitalism and the ruling groups themselves. It's accelerated the breakdown of the post-World War II international order. It's increased the danger of international military confrontation and war. And we have Ukraine now and the threat of nuclear war. So the crisis, poses great dangers, but also great possibilities for us to struggle from below and overturn this miserable death system that we are facing. But the left and progressives have to seize the initiative of this crisis. I'd like to thank both of you for joining us today. Peter Phillips, author of Giants, Global Power Elites, political sociologist, Sonoma State University, and William I. Robinson, author most recently of Global Civil War, distinguished professor at UC Santa Barbara. William, you said a couple of times that you couldn't go into detail, but this is a great time for me to say that's why listeners might be interested in getting a copy of the book, because it is absolutely riveting. It is amazingly detailed. It is an impeccable piece of scholarship. 
It's mandatory reading for people trying to navigate these crises we face. And of course, you've gotten great accolades for the book from Chris Hedges, John Pilger, Noam Chomsky, Bianca Yamada-Taylor, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic, William Robinson, out now on PM Press. You can get it from PM Press or your favorite local independent bookstore. William Robinson, Peter Phillips, thank you so much for joining us today on The Project Censored Show. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mickey. I'm glad to be back here. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. You've been listening to The Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out the reach on potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu.